0: Today on Velshi, the biggest lie yet. Donald Trump's Republican Party calls the insurrection legitimate political discourse. In just a moment, I'll talk to the man who told us that January 6 would happen almost two years before it did. Michael Cohen's got first-hand experience as Donald Trump's fall guy, and he warned us that his former boss would not go peacefully if he lost the election. The twice-impeached ex-president's former fixer joins me next. Plus. Huge job numbers beat everyone's expectations this week as the recovery continues. But what is this booming economy doing for black Americans? I'll talk to the vice president of the St. Louis Fed and introducing the Velshi Band Book Club. Nicole Hannah-Jones joins me later in the show to inaugurate a brand new series where you can help us fight the forces working to pull books off library shelves. There will be an assignment, so take notes. Velshi starts now. And good morning to you. It is Saturday, February the 5th. I'm Ali Velshi. For most Americans, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th of 2021 was one of the most shocking events in recent history. Now, Some would like you to believe it was a relatively spontaneous turn of events, except it wasn't. What we've learned since then is that it was stoked by an active plot to deny Joe Biden the presidency. Memos unearthed by The New York Times and The Washington Post this week continue to shed light on the intricate, desperate and months long effort that preceded the events of that day. And they link those efforts to Donald Trump Himself, According to the New York Times, quote, 15 days after Election Day in 2020, James R. Troupas, a lawyer for the Trump campaign in Wisconsin, received a memo setting out what became the rationale for an audacious strategy to put in place alternate slates of electors in states where President Donald J. Trump was trying to overturn his loss. But the November 18th memo and another memo three weeks later are among the earliest known efforts to put on paper proposals for preparing and submitting alternate slates of electors. The memos helped to shape a crucial strategy that Mr. Trump would embrace with profound consequences for himself and the nation, end quote. Another report from the Times also directly connects Trump with the unsigned draft executive order that would have allowed the military to seize voting machines across the country. Meanwhile, a separate memo drafted by Trump allies and obtained by the Washington Post proposed another idea, quote, the memo used the banal language of government bureaucracy, but the proposal it advocated, was extreme President Donald Trump should invoke the extraordinary powers of the National Security Agency and the Defense Department to sift through raw electronic communications in an attempt to show that foreign powers had intervened in the 2020 election to help Joe Biden win End quote. Now, these memos show the extent to which Donald Trump and his allies went to create false justifications to overturn the election. None of their dangerous ideas succeeded. Well, maybe one of them did. It made people doubt the election. But Trump and his people were consumed by this effort for weeks, many hours spent studying archaic laws like the Electoral Count Act and trying to find loopholes that would allow Trump to hold on to power for as long as possible. Elected members of Congress were even aware that this was going on. The Washington Post reports that at least three GOP senators, Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, attended a meeting at the Trump International Hotel in D.C. on January 4th that was organized by the then sleep deprived foam pillow salesman to discuss bogus allegations of election fraud. It is shocking to think about this. But at the same time, it's not really surprising at all, considering the man we're talking about. Let's take a quick trip down memory lane. Just over six years ago today, on February 1st, 2016, the state of Iowa kicked off primary season with its famously first-in-the-nation caucus. The big winner that night was Ted Cruz. Trump came in a close and respectable second place, but because he's Donald Trump, he began making baseless accusations about the results of the Iowa caucus a couple of days later. He tweeted that it was rigged, that there was fraud involved and that the state should redo the election because he didn't like the outcome. The 2016 Iowa caucus was the first time that Donald Trump was a candidate for any election of any kind. Six years later, Trump is the same man he was back then, repeating the same tired and baseless lies. Except this time, the election delusion that he conjured up is eroding democracy nationwide. It's causing turmoil within his own party. The rift between Donald Trump and his vice president, Mike Pence, spilled out into the open this week. Last Sunday, Donald Trump issued a statement in which he declared that Pence, quote, could have overturned the election. Yesterday, The former vice president responded to the twice impeached ex president's outrageous claim.
1: President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president.
0: Also yesterday, the Republican National Committee overwhelmingly voted to censure representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, both Republicans. The RNC cited their work as members of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection as the reason why they've been marginalized by their own party. This is what the Republican Party has been reduced to. It's a party without a platform that mainly exists right now to place a disgraced and failed politician in the front and center. There's never been a genuine effort to uncover and remedy widespread fraud in the 2020 elections because there simply wasn't widespread fraud in the 2020 elections. It's been proved over and over again by courts, by recounts, by secretaries of state, Republican and Democrat. This has always been about the preservation of one man's fragile ego. And here with me now is someone who knows that man and his fragile ego very well. For more than a decade, Michael Cohen served as Trump's personal attorney and so-called fixer before they bitterly parted ways shortly after Trump entered, entered the White House. In 2018, he pleaded guilty to a series of crimes related to work he did on Trump's behalf. He's recently completed his sentence this past November. He's the author of the book Disloyal, a memoir, the true story of the former personal attorney to President Donald J. Trump. Michael Cohen joins me now. Michael, good to see you this morning. Thank you for being with us. Good,
2: good, to, see, good to see you, Ali. And I'm certainly hoping that they don't end up banning Disloyal uh, <laughs> and my podcast, mea culpa, you know, from that list of... Um, Ali Velshi books that are going to be banned. Yes.
0: Well, if, if they do, we'll put you on Velshi banned books uh, on uh, <laughs> book, book club. Michael, let's say, you and know, I read that New York Times article. It, it was wild. There's been a series of articles this week, including one in the in New York magazine. Um, the 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 cast of characters, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, The Pillow Guy, The Overstock CEO, The Cyber Ninja Guy, they were all together at some point, Mike Flynn. They were all trying to figure out some way of overturning this election. They drafted an executive order for Donald Trump's signature. Uh, According to The New York Times, Donald Trump was front and center in this thing. He was sort of leading it. He was trying to get to the answer he wanted. He would go with whatever fruity claim uh, came up as long as it would keep him president you know that man. How did this go down with all these people around him jockeying for position, trying to convince him that he could remain president?
2: Right. So there's nothing new here that I saw because I've watched Donald do the same stupid, you know, things over and over and over again during more than my decade with him. Here's the scenario. Okay, Donald is actually a very he's a very stupid man. And the way that you ingratiate yourself into into his orbit, is you say ridiculous things, knowing that it's not true, but knowing it's exactly what Donald Trump wants to hear. So you you were 100% correct, Ali, when you said he has a fragile ego. He is the most fragile ego of anyone you will probably ever meet. And the fact that he lost the election, that's impossible to him. So anyone that would come to him and say, Mr. Mr. President, Donald, whatever they want to call him, Mike Pence has the ability to go ahead and to and to stop the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Now all of a sudden he's perked up and he's interested and He'll tell you, go into the other room and come back with a strategy. So the notion that Donald wasn't involved in it is absolutely baseless. But then it gets better because other people turn around and see that Donald is paying attention to them. So they want the attention themselves. It's really crazy. The whole organization ran this same way. So what you do is you come up with something more ludicrous. Hey, all of the machines are being hacked. By foreign entities. And so let's, let's confiscate them. Yeah, yeah, we can confiscate them. Let's get the FBI to do it. Let's get secret service. Let's get the national security agency. Let's get the justice department. And they're like, okay, you know, yeah, let's do this. And Donald in his crazy mind is thinking, yeah, yeah, I can do this. I'm the president still. Uh, I, I can, I can do this, right? I can do this. And all you need is one person, one sycophantic fool. Like a Rudy Kaluti or Mark Meadows. And next thing you know, he's out there and they're scratching out a document for him to sign. It's insane. It's not America.
0: Back in 2019, I think you told Chris Hayes that Donald Trump is not going to go uh, without a fight. He's not going to go easily. Turned out to be true. You and I talked on your podcast recently and you said all the stuff Donald Trump's doing, he's not going to run for office. It's for something else. It's to feed his ego. I have to say, with all these rallies he's holding and all the attention he's getting and the grip he's got on the Republican Party, are you still convinced he's not running for president again?
2: Yeah. And actually, I believe that that grip is waning. And I also believe that grip will disappear once the 2022 midterms are over simply because there's a group of individuals that needs his base in order to be reelected the problem is that the politicians the gop politicians they don't care about america they don't care about democracy or a constitution and any one of them that says that's not true is a liar right they don't what they care about just like donald is their own power end of story that's all they care about. You know, it's funny. We were talking when we were talking before about, you know, the things that Donald does. I'll never forget. This is a true story. When we were in the office um, and the Billy Bush tape. Came out, one of our mutual friends um, said to Donald, this this is it was crazy that that's not your voice on the tape with Billy Bush and Donald sat for a second. He, perked, you know, up his face like he does. And next thing he says, you're right. Let's say it wasn't me. I'm not sure. We need to have that tape you know, um, tested to make sure. So this is interesting. Donald is a habitual liar. So and this he is a lie though. about anything to protect himself.
0: So when he hears this idea that he can use either the Homeland Security or National Guard or whomever to the, the military to get these voting machines and seize them and find evidence, do you think he thought that they could find evidence in there that proved that he he won the election? Was he deluding himself into the idea that he won the election or is he just pathologically not able to lose? He's pathologically not able to lose, and he will look
2: for anything, anything that he can turn around and point his finger to and say, see, I told you, I'm right. Because Donald, in his mind, thinks he's right about everything. I mean, you've never met anybody like that who is incapable of error. It's exactly why he said he's never, he's never apologized to God because he's never made a mistake. I mean, anyone that's watching this program knows right off the bat that Donald made more than one mistake while well, he was at least president of the United States. But he will never acknowledge error because he thinks it's a weakness. And employing the military to come in and to seize machines, it's so Kim Jong Un, it's so Vladimir Putin style, it's so Mohammed bin Salman style. It excited him.
0: It's wild. Michael, good to see you this morning. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Michael Cohen is the former personal attorney for Donald Trump. He's the host of an excellent podcast called Mea Culpa with Michael Cohen. I've appeared with him a few times. His book, now this is important uh, because it is not yet banned. Uh, his book is called Disloyal, a <laughs> memoir, the true story of the former personal attorney to President Donald J. Trump. But as soon as some school boards get uh, wind of the fact that it's critical of Donald Trump, it may also appear on the Velshi banned Book Club list. So keep an eye on that. Read it now while you can still buy it. Here with me now is Eugene Scott, national political reporter for The Washington Post. Eugene, my friend, good to see you. Thank you for uh, being with us. I have to say, with each week what happened on January 6th comes into sharper relief, right? In the beginning, people were saying to me, why do we need this January 6th committee? We had the impeachment. We, we knew exactly what happened that day. But in fact, we did not. And what I was just discussing with Michael Cohen is that the degree to which we know each one of that clown car of players was playing in trying to convince Donald Trump to do things that we now know to be illegal to overturn the results of that election. It feels that there's still more to come.
3: Absolutely. And I really believe that this is one of those situations where we will be made aware of the background and details involved in this insurrection for for maybe decades to come. And and one of the things that's so fascinating uh, listening to Trump defenders, even those in Congress who push back on any uh, suggestion that things illicit were involved and uh, determined by the White House, is the reality that they don't know all of the things that are coming to light because they t- they make it very clear that when they find out information uh, that has been revealed, that it's news to them. Uh, there were so many hands involved, very often not working together or on the same page, but trying to figure out how they individually, or at least their set, could keep Donald Trump in office. And I think that American people need to know what was involved and who was involved and so that alone, I think, will be motivation enough for investigations to continue.
0: What do you think happens, though, like when there are public hearings and all of these dots are put together right now? They're mostly being put together in the press. Obviously, something more complete will come out from the committee. Um, but what do you think happens? I mean, is it your view that anybody changes their mind about anything as a result of this?
3: Well, we know that the media one consumes directly influences how they see the world and what they believe. And so while you've been having this conversation for at least the last 15 minutes, we know that conservative media is not likely addressing this at all this morning. And so many of the people who do not believe that things were happening that were uh, inconsistent with what is legal aren't even hearing these stories. In fact, they're hearing conspiracy theories and pushback on the Democrats and even Republicans who have unveiled all of this information. And so it depends what you consume, who you're doing life with, who you're listening to, which political leaders you look up to are directly shaping your view of January 6th. And we knew that to be true on January 7th. And that will continue to be true moving forward. It's very worrisome,
0: Eugene. It is very, very worrisome. But it's good to have you here as always. Thank you, my friend. Good to see you. Eugene Scott is a national political reporter for The Washington Post. We'll continue to break down these wild new developments relating to the January 6th investigation and the ongoing efforts to save American democracy. We will discuss it with Democratic Representative Stacey Plaskett at the top of the hour. You'll recall she was the impeachment manager who laid out exactly what happened at the Capitol on that day. Plus, I am excited to make a major announcement about a new Velshi series. We've talked about it a little bit, and we're going to need your help and your suggestions. More on that in just a moment. But first, we head to Ukraine for a live report on the ground as the specter of a Russian invasion looms large. The US and its western allies continue to engage in a high-stakes waiting game as tensions between Russia and Ukraine simmer. The Kremlin has more than 130,000 Russian troops deployed along Ukraine's borders to the north, east, and South. And the New York Times reports that according to Ukrainian armed forces, portions of the Russian military have reached full combat strength and appear to be almost ready for war should the Kremlin give the go ahead to invade. Meanwhile, President Biden has already sent more than 3000 American troops to NATO allies in Eastern Europe to help booster, uh, bolster defenses. And he's keeping another 8500 soldiers on standby. Joining me now is NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Uh, Matt, Good afternoon to you. Amid the crisis there, you're getting more insight into the plight of people who live in limbo in Luhansk, which is a Russian-controlled territory in Ukraine. They're literally stuck between a rock and a hard place.
6: Yeah, that's right. You know, it's a reminder of the fact that for a lot of Ukrainians, this isn't a new thing. You know, this threat of war, they've been living with this for the past eight years. And I went out to Sanitsia Luhanska, and you know, only last year, the Hungarian foreign minister, he was out there. He called it one of the saddest places in Europe. Take a look at our report. This border crossing on Europe's Eastern fringe stands as a monument to displacement and despair. What's life like on the other side? It's like we are indigenous people being oppressed by colonizers. We are not allowed to go either here or there. On the other side, the self-declared Luhansk People's Republic, a Russian-led separatist region that's been at war with Ukraine since 2014. For the thousands of people have to cross back and forth on this bridge into Russian-controlled territory every day, war with Russia isn't imminent. It's their past, present, and future. What is the significance of this crossing? This checkpoint in Stanitsa Luhansk is very important for the people living on both sides because it's the only one that's still functioning. Most people cross the checkpoint to get their pension, get vaccinated, visit relatives or buy groceries. Here, the West's pledges of support have always rung hollow. Is there anything else that you want to tell the world? about this. Tell Biden, please don't send troops to shoot around here. We'll deal with our own problems. So, Ali, it just goes to show that's why people here in Ukraine, they're not running around with their hair on fire. It's been one of the questions since the beginning. Why Ukrainians seem so unconcerned? It's because for them, war is just a day-to-day reality. Ali?
0: Matt, good to see you, my friend. Stay safe there. Matt Bradley in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Well, more Americans are dying daily from COVID-19 right now than at almost any other point during the pandemic. We're seeing deaths consistently between 3,000 and 4,000 a day, and some communities are getting uh, hit harder than others. A grim milestone to report this morning, we've passed 900,000 total deaths related to COVID-19 in the U.S. since the start of the pandemic. More than 3,800 people died of COVID on Thursday of this week alone. At this point in the pandemic, most of the people dying, the overwhelming majority, are the unvaccinated. So I want to focus on the grassroots level battle to administer vaccines to those who are still resisting getting the shot. Dr. Ayla Stanford has been on the front lines of trying to get First, testing and then vaccines to the black community in Philadelphia since the start of the pandemic. Her organization, the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium, has teamed up with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, in a big push to get kids vaccinated in local area schools. In Philadelphia, anyone 11 or older can be vaccinated with or without parental consent. The school district, however, requires consent for students in the eighth grade and below. Only about half of kids in Philadelphia are vaccinated right now. The Philadelphia Inquirer tagged along with Dr. Stanford as she set up a vaccination clinic at a high school. And one interaction they observed really caught my attention. A 15 year old told Dr. Stanford that his grandfather didn't want him to get the vaccine. If he did, he told the doctor, he might have his video games taken away. Joining us this morning is Dr. Ayla Stanford. She's a pediatric, a pediatric and general surgeon, founder of the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium. Fun fact, she administered my first COVID test back in 2020. Um, Dr. Stanford, it is good to see you. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, what's your general what's the general reaction and feedback you're getting to an attempt to vaccinate more kids?
4: So the children who have not had access and opportunity jump at the chance. I have an educational session and I ask them, if you've been vaccinated, tell me why. If you haven't, tell me why not. That starts the conversation. I'm able to dispel myths. And for my high schoolers, most of them thought that they needed parental consent, that they needed insurance and that they needed I.D., to get vaccinated. When I tell them that's not the case, many of them are jumping at the opportunity to get vaccinated.
0: You know, when you first started testing uh, before there was a vaccine, the part of the issue was that in the areas you were dealing with, particularly the, the, the areas with high black populations in Philadelphia, a lot of people didn't have doctors. Uh, the, the, some of these areas were almost healthcare deserts, if you will. So testing was not easy to come by for anybody in those days, but particularly for black people. And you managed to go out into the community and get people tested. Now it's different because they weren't resistant to testing. They just couldn't really get access to it. It was a logistics issue. What do you do with people? How, how many people are still resistant to the idea of getting a vaccine? And how do you tackle that?
4: So I listen to them. And that has been what we've done since the beginning, being empathetic and understanding why there might be distrust with a medical system that has been largely untrustworthy to them in their communities. Sometimes with the children, it's as simple as I'm afraid of a needle. We were also with our Philadelphia Police Department yesterday going to them with the assistance of FEMA because they need boosters. And sometimes it's just I can't get time off work. So in a public health crisis, you have to go to the people, particularly those who are most vulnerable. And that is alleviating many of the barriers. But we do need folks to stop putting in place obstruction and barriers, creating your own rules, uh, blocking wearing masks, uh, blocking uh, children once they make a decision by then involving others to stop them from making that choice. And then it would be a lot easier for us to do our job.
0: You and I have spent some time together on uh, Facebook Live talk taking questions from people uh, who are concerned. Do you draw a distinction between black people who have uh, legitimate and valid reasons for historical reasons for distrust, distrust in the medical system and people who fall victim to anti-vax conspiracy theories.
4: Uh, Again, that's why you have to listen. Sometimes it's a combination of both. Sometimes it's just I'm scared of a needle Um, and then explaining to folks that the people who are getting sick right now are largely unvaccinated, uh, that you are more likely to be hospitalized if you're not vaccinated. And even for the people who don't die, some folks with COVID are never the same again. And so in our Center for Health Equity, which, by the way, we still need city, state, and federal funding so we will be sustainable and present in perpetuity, we are able to not just talk about COVID, but talk about preventative health care and to talk about health disease and preventing cancer and other conditions. So you got to meet people where they are um, and answer and alleviate their fears.
0: One thing you used to tell me, we would say on these, these Facebook lives, is when people would be hesitant, and you'd say that in, in the black community in Philadelphia, in some cases, there are very high instances of diabetes and heart disease. And if you have diabetes and heart disease and you get COVID, your chance of dying is substantially higher than the average person. Does that resonate?
4: Oh, absolutely. And so we stopped. Just giving a shot. Now, when you come in to see us, we do a mini physical exam. We check your vital signs, your blood pressure. We go over your medications and your past medical history because we were literally putting a Band-Aid on when you came for your vaccine and not paying attention to the things that plague us in the United States, in the health disparities and health inequity that exist in this community. And so that's what's different this year than last year. Yes, we're still in a pandemic, but we cannot ignore all the people who have had delayed diagnosis with cancer that are at increased risk for stroke by not focusing on the other conditions. And so that's what we're doing with our Center for Health Equity. And I encourage others to do the same.
0: You are such a hero, you and your colleagues who went out and just just went at it when there was nothing there for people in terms of testing and vaccines. Thanks for all you do, Ayla. Dr. Ayla Stanford is a pediatric and general surgeon and the founder of the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium in Philadelphia. Still ahead, February is Black Heritage Month. Next hour, we'll dive into the ongoing fight to stop the erosion of voting rights across the country. The Congressman Jamal Bowman, who was just arrested for fighting for voting rights, joins me for that. But first, we are announcing a new series here at Velshi. That's next.
7: What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now.
0: All right. We've got a lot more Velshi on the way at the top of the hour. I'll speak with Democratic Representative Stacey Plaskett about how the Republican Party has now declared the attack on the Capitol, quote, legitimate political discourse. But first, amid the rash of book banning across the nation, we're doing something special on Velshi. We're launching a banned book club. You are all invited. Each week, we'll feature books and authors who've been thrust into the national spotlight due to the content of their writing. But come on, what's a book club without members? So please send your book recommendations, your comments, your suggestions about books that have been banned or are being banned to my story at Velshi.com, my story at Velshi.com each week to help propel our conversation. The point is, we'll we'll get a book, we'll decide on a book, we'll read it through the course of the week, and then we're going to have an author to talk about it. We've already got a book and an author picked for next weekend, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Grab a copy this week and join our discussion online. I know most book clubs tend to have wine, but it's a little bit early for that. So instead, join me with your finest cappuccino, perhaps a plate of eggs. We're going to have some really good discussion, and I can't wait to get started. We'll be right back. If you've been watching our show recently, you'd know that we've been keeping a close watch on the hundreds of books that have either been challenged, barred or faced proposals to get pulled from schools, curricula and libraries across the country. Hundreds of books, new and old. They've been deemed controversial for a variety of reasons. These books contain, quote, objectionable language, outrageous storytelling. They're too sexually explicit or they fall into this vague, largely undefined or mischaracterized allegation of being about critical race theory. In some cases, the problem with these books is that their contents just make might make a young reader, or more likely their parents, uncomfortable. Now, a book might do all of those things that critics say, and that's okay. Some books are for comfort, some books are for laughs, some books are for love, some are to expand our minds, help us understand things outside of our own experience, expose us to the perspective of others, and maybe, just maybe, make us uncomfortable. I love books, and I like when they make me feel warm and fuzzy about myself or the world, but I've actually had the most personal growth from books and people who present me with ideas that make me uncomfortable. And some of that discomfort relates specifically to my station in life as a man, as a person with a platform, and as a person of means. I'm not to blame for anyone else's suffering or lack of equality in society, but I can choose to be responsible. And with that responsibility, consider ways in which I can change things for the better. The discomfort motivates me. What's weird about these book bans is that virtually none of them are the so-called normal books about the straight white experience— not too many people seem to find those all that threatening. But once you start talking about the blacks and the gays and maybe black people who are gay or people who don't think they are the gender in which they were assigned at birth, whoa, things start to get really weird. Then there are a host of arguments made against the books that some are simply prudish, but several of these arguments are clearly racist or homophobic or transphobic. And most of all, it is anti-intellectual, the same sort that gets us climate deniers and anti-vaxxers. Titles include award-winning literature like The Bluest Eye by the late Toni Morrison, a black Nobel Prize winner. Heather Has Two Mommies by Leslie Newman about a uh, sorry, Leslie and Newman about a young girl who has lesbian mothers and realizes that her family is different than her friends. Mouse, a Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novice by uh, novel by Art Spiegelman, which depicts the horrors of the Holocaust. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, a book that became a must-read in 2020 during the nation's racial reckoning in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The list goes on. Banning books is bad. It deprives young people and older people like me of exposure to ideas, concepts, and worldviews that are not their own. It stifles curiosity. It perpetuates stereotypes. And when you dampen curiosity, you weaken our ability to think critically, to know when you're being fooled. Banning books is going to make us into a stupid society, vulnerable to misinformation and manipulation. You know I tend to prattle on about democracy on this show, but a democracy relies upon an informed electorate. We are less informed when our choices about the range of information we consume is arbitrarily limited. Banning books imperils society. But that's not all that's bad about it. Banning books that humanize people's experience with race and sexuality and gender and ability and grinding poverty and sexual assault actually reverses the difficult process that we are undergoing as a society to change and to become better. In doing so, it upholds the status quo. And upholding the status quo sounds okay if the status quo is working for you. But the status quo is not working for millions of Americans, and banning books that trouble your sensibilities fast becomes a tool of subjugation and oppression. Do not let this one get by you. Find out what your school or school district is doing about books. Attend school board meetings. Very few people do, and very few people vote in local elections. Do these things even if you don't have kids. Because the kids who don't read these books today will be our leaders one day, and I definitely do not need another generation of people governing this country who cannot empathize with the experiences of those of whom they govern. Sometimes it feels like there's too much to fight for and it's hard to win, but pushing against book bans is what we call low-hanging fruit. You can actually make a difference in this one. We all can. Now, Banning books has been happening for decades, but the catalyst for this latest wave is none other than Nicole Hannah-Jones, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for The New York Times Magazine and the creator of the landmark 1619 Project. She's had some powerful enemies since the day she introduced that year, 1619, into our collective lexicon, with accusations that she's concocted a revisionistic account of history and her work is the epitome of critical race theory. Here's the thing. The 1619 Project is critical. And it is about race, but it's not theory. I'll talk to Professor Hannah Jones after the break. All right. Before the break, I talked about the underlying danger of this wave of book bans that's spreading across the country. The goal of these book bans seems to be to suppress ideas or narratives that might make readers uncomfortable. It's got the added bonus of riling up the conservative base these days and stoking the culture wars. So here's what we're doing about it. Today, we inaugurate inaugurate the Velshi Band Book Club and we invite you all to be members. Each week, we'll read a banned book together during the week, and on the weekend, we'll speak with the author, or if the authors aren't with us, someone who knows their work well. Now, I know you haven't had a chance to read a book for the club yet, so we're going to kick it off with our friend Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the Landmark 1619 Project, which seeks to reframe American history to more accurately include the role of slavery in black people. When the project debuted in 2019, it set off a firestorm of criticism fueled by discomfort, and a wave of bans that sought to stop teachers from using it in class. Unfortunately, those bans, almost three years ago, were just a precursor to what we're seeing happen today. Nicole Hannah-Jones joins me now. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times Magazine, the night Chair in Race and Journalism at Howard University, and a co-creator of the 1619 Project. She's also the co-author of the book, The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. Nicole, good to see you. Thank you for being with us this morning.
8: Thank you so much. And thank you for that powerful opening monologue.
0: Let's talk about it a little bit. What's the what's the issue here? You, you, I know, have never been uncomfortable with the idea that your writing makes people uncomfortable. It, it almost seems by design, right? You get people out of their comfort zone. That is a, a good intellectual space for us all to be in. We have books out there that make people uncomfortable. We have books out there that give people offense no matter where they are on the political spectrum. What's your best argument for why we mustn't not only ban them, but you should read them.
8: Well, I feel like this is an obvious argument that the role of an education, um, the role of being a member of a multiracial society is to expand our understanding of our world, not to simply have an education that affirms what we already know, that affirms our worldview, but one that is challenging. I mean, I think about this idea that we should never expose children to things that make them uncomfortable. The books that have been most transformative for me are, are the books that have been deeply unsettling. I think about the first time I read Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson on the train, and I, I started sobbing on the train because I had never thought about capital punishment in that way and um, how we allow the state to kill in our name in that way. A Thousand Splendid Sons forced me to think about what we were doing in Afghanistan in a way that I didn't have to examine from the comforts of my home. And I also cried reading that book. So I I don't understand how we think that children should not be exposed to things that make them more empathetic, that help them understand their links to uh, other parts of humanity. That is the purpose of an education. And frankly, I feel like that is what we must do as human beings.
0: So you and I have had discussion many times because I, I truly I admit this freely. I did not know the relevance of 1619 before meeting you. You and I sat in this building at a desk and you you educated me on that. And my my response was, wow, that's neat like something I didn't know that I now am going to know. Why do you think there is a response that's not that? You are literally bringing attention to something that actually happened. That's why I said it's not theory. You're actually telling people what actually happened in 1619 that they perhaps were not taught in school. Why does it awaken uh, such enmity?
8: Well, as you know, so much of our kind of national identity in this country has been built around this this concept of American exceptionalism. And we stake a lot in the idea that we are an exceptional country, an exceptional force for good, that we are the freest country the world has ever seen. And that is hinged on thinking about 1776 as being about colonists who broke off from a repressive um, empire in order to get their freedom. So to recenter American identity around the fact that we actually were a slave nation, that uh, slavery was pivotal pivotal to our development has been deeply unsettling to people. Um, as you all are reading in your band Book Club, I would suggest that you read an essay that I assigned my students at Howard University that's in the book Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois called The Propaganda of History. And it helps us understand that history is not simply what happened on what day and who did it. History is What are we taught about what happened? And history is about power. Who gets to shape what we know about what happened in the past? And 1619 has been erased, and you know this. Um, That has been intentional. And when we start to fill in those gaps, then I think people start to challenge the, the, the powerful people who allow history to maintain their power. That's what these laws are about. They're clearly not about an accurate rendering of history. They're actually about an inaccurate rendering of history, a rendering of history that maintains power, that maintains the justification for those who run our country.
0: Uh, Nicole, thank you for helping us kick this off. Uh, I think you're an important voice to to help people understand why this is necessary to go out and get those books while you can across the spectrum. Whoever you are, however they may offend you. That's the point. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a Pulitzer Prize winning staff writer with The New York Times Magazine, co-creator of The 1619 Project. Uh, again, you are all now members of the Velshi Band Book Club. We should get membership cards or something. And meetings are right here every weekend. Like I said before, we're going to feature books and authors that have been challenged across the political spectrum or pulled in libraries and schools across the nation. We want your input. We need your input because what's a book club without discussion and suggestions? Send your book recommendations, your questions for the authors, your comments, your reactions to this week's book to my story at com each week to help propel our conversation. Our inaugural book is All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. This memoir manifesto explores Johnson's childhood through college years as a young queer man of color covering crucial topics like gender identity, structural marginalization, consent, and black joy. It has been targeted for removal in at least 15 states. So pick up a copy of All Boys Aren't Blue at your local library or your bookstore if you still can. Give it a read. Let us know what you think. And be sure to join us next weekend when George M. Johnson will be here to join our discussion. This is a real book club. Don't go anywhere. We've got a lot more for you this Saturday morning. Straight ahead, Representative Stacey Plaskett reacts to some wild new developments relating to January 6th that you'll have to hear to believe. Another hour of Velshi begins right now. Good morning. It is 9 a.m. in the East. I'm Ali Velshi. Ahead of the upcoming midterm elections and the 2024 presidential election, a dangerous Republican narrative is coming into focus, one that foreshadows a dystopian future steeped in revisionist history, filled with lies where people responsible for the violent and deadly attack on the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021, should be pardoned and praised as martyrs for participating in, quote, legitimate political discourse. The Republican National committee has voted to formally censure the Republican representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for being members of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack. That is their offense. The actual censure document is wild on many levels. Among other truly insane things, it accuses Cheney and Kinzinger of being, quote, destructive to the Republican Party for wanting to find the truth about January 6th. It argues that, quote, the conference, the Republican conference must not be sabotaged by Cheney and Kinzinger. By the way, both of these positions also seemingly admit some culpability for January 6th, because how else could the truth be destructive and seeking it be considered sabotage? The RNC then admits that it's demanding Republicans put party over country and pledge fealty to Donald Trump, adding that Cheney and Kinzinger, quote, support Democrat efforts to destroy President Trump more than they support winning back a Republican majority in 2022, end quote. It does not end there. As this surreal New York Times headline in today's paper shows, the party of Lincoln and Reagan now formally and publicly holds the position that the deadly mob of people trying to overthrow the U.S. government consisted of, quote, ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. In case you missed that, the official position of the RNC now is that legitimate political discourse is what happened on January 6th, a day in which It resulted in the deaths of at least five police officers and multiple insurrectionists, including one who was shot and died while attempting to forcibly breach a barricaded area of the Capitol building. According to the RNC, quote, legitimate political discourse end quote now includes publicly chanting a desire to hang the former vice president, Mike Pence. It also includes literally bringing a preconstructed gallows along. I'd never seen a gallows in my life, not in America. The RNC also believes that legitimate political discourse should result in the vice president being ushered away, as you see here, under guard for fear of his life. Yesterday, just a couple of hours after that censure vote and the release of the anti-democratic document in a speech before the Federalist Society, the former Vice President Mike Pence indirectly weighed in on the situation while offering his most public and straightforward repudiation of the insurrectionist former president, acknowledging that the big lie is a threat to American democracy.
1: Six was a dark day in the history of the United States Capitol. Lives were lost and many were injured. I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. And the truth is there's more at stake than our party or political fortunes. Men and women, if we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections. We'll lose our country. It's
0: quite something from the former vice president. We will lose our country. In addition to those remarks, the National Archives says that Pence's records will be turned over to the House Select Committee on March 3rd. We also know that Pence's former chief of staff, Mark Short, someone who has firsthand knowledge of the former president's efforts to pressure Pence to overturn the election, recently appeared before the Select Committee under subpoena. Politico is reporting. Yesterday, the Select Committee interviewed the former Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy, the official in charge of making decisions about deploying National Guard troops. You'll remember they came quite late. Joining me now is Democratic Representative Stacey Plaskett of the United States Virgin Islands. She served as an impeachment manager in the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Representative Plaskett, good to see you this morning. Thank you for being with us. Uh, The The vice president's comments, you, again, are the person that Americans remember as laying out exactly what happened in the in the uh, in the Congress on January 6th. We know that something happened to the vice president. We know they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. We knew there were gallows. We knew he was ushered out to safety. We did know that the White House seemed to have zero interest in his safety. They didn't call him. He called them. But now you are hearing from the vice president the strongest words yet that you're wrong. I wasn't authorized to do what I can do. And where the Republican Party is going is into dangerous anti-democratic territory.
9: Uh, It's good to be here with you. And, you know, this is just a culmination of something that's been happening for a number of years in the Republican Party. Let's recall that during the uh, President Obama's administration, Mitch McConnell said that he would be an obstructionist, that he would not work with Democrats, that he was going to be uh, the grim reaper in which no legislation would pass. Fast forward into when the Republicans had a unified government having control of both the House, the Senate, and the White House. What did they do? They only took care of themselves with a tax legislation. And now we see that they were unwilling to loose the grips of power uh, at the demise of our democracy. They are only concerned with power. They are only concerned with controlling our government. And if they cannot have it, they will destroy it. And that's what we've seen that uh, the President Trump has done uh, through the so much information that's coming out in January 6 that is validating the impeachment of that president and will show history will show that individuals who did not vote to convict him were absolutely wrong.
0: I'm curious about whether this RNC censure of uh, your colleagues, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, may be a bridge too far for some people. I constantly hear from former Republicans and Republicans that there's no real civil war going on in the Republican Party. It's Trump's party. And yet there were a number of tweets um, out yesterday as a result of this from Republicans. Mitch Romney tweeted, shame falls on a party that would censure persons, persons of Congress conscience who seek truth in the face of vitriol. Honor attaches to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for seeking truth, even when doing so comes at great personal cost. Senator Cassidy tweeted the RNC is censuring Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger because they are trying to find out what happened on January 6th. Huh? Uh, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland says the GOP, I believe, is the party of freedom and truth. It's a sad day for my party and the country when you're punished just for expressing your beliefs, standing on principle and refusing to tell blatant lies. Tell me about this, because on January 6th of 2021, All sorts of Republicans said this is terrible. One of them was, in fact, Donald J. Trump himself. He said this is terrible and people who did this should pay the price. Everybody folded. Everybody flipped. Does this flip them back a little bit?
9: Uh, Unfortunately, the individuals that you have cited putting out tweets are Cassidy, uh, as well as Romney, were the brave Republicans who were willing to vote to convict the president in the impeachment. And we know that Governor Hogan has in the past come out against uh, Donald Trump. So we don't see those individuals who have been lockstep behind the president after January 6, now turning and actually getting a spine that has not happened and i don't see it happening within the republican party uh it's a sad day when we have the opposing party that is not not only not playing by the rules but actually going after our democracy i'm not convinced that the republican party has a way back anymore It, it doesn't seem that that's possible
3: it
0: is odd because I, I'm not sure a ton of my viewers think that uh, Mike Pence was the guy who was going to save democracy or the Republican Party. Um, you did say in your presentation during the impeachment uh, in February of twenty twenty one. You said the mob was looking for Vice President Pence because of his patriotism, because the vice president refused to do what the president demanded and overturned the election results. They were talking about assassinating the vice president of the United States. Now, we're more than a year Later, This is literally a year after you said this, um, I suppose, better late than never. But do you think Mike Pence saying what he said yesterday uh, is of any consequence? Will it have any impact on anybody?
9: Oh, well, you know, I'm a pessimist, Allie, and I fear that Mike Pence is really just trying to save himself in his own presidential bid. We know that he's been engaged in um, meetings in South Carolina, where there's a huge Republican primary. We don't have him willing to come and testify before the January 6th Commission, and those individuals uh, from his inner circle, while they did testify, refuse to say specifically their conversations with President Trump. So let's not uh, hail him as the great hero at this point. You know, we're grateful that he did not succumb to pressure from Donald Trump to uh, try to follow suit and try to overthrow the government on January 6th. But is he going to be the patriot that we see Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney and actually outright repudiating the president and what he said? That's yet to be seen.
0: Representative Stacey Plaskett, Democratic uh, Representative for the U.S. Virgin Islands. Thanks for being with us this morning. We always appreciate your time on a on a weekend morning. Joining me now, Yamish Alcindor. She's the anchor and moderator of Washington Week on PBS. She's also an MSNBC contributor and will soon join us as NBC's uh, Washington correspondent, my friend. It is always a pleasure to work with you, however it comes to be. Um, I, I'm dying for your take on everything that we've heard in the last week. There have been very detailed reports published about the stuff that was going on sort of from about mid-November of 2020 until January 6th. And, and with. Each each passing day is with each layer of the onion that peels back. It seems closer and closer to Donald Trump knowing what was going on and perhaps having an orchestrating role in it.
10: Well, this last week has been extraordinary because we kind of thought we knew how bad things were. We thought we knew because Former President Trump was tweeting about overturning the election. He did something that no American president has ever done, which is declare victory on election night, even though he had not won the election. And then here we go with memos that show that there were people within the government, not just President Trump, but aides and lawyers and all sorts of other people around him that were thinking about using the powers of the NSA to try to somehow overturn the election. Of course, there was also this draft executive order where they were talking about taking over the voting machines. I mean, I think this is why lawmakers were so insistent, including, of course, Representative Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who were extraordinarily rebuked by their own party. They were so insistent on saying, no, we need an investigation. We need documents because it goes far beyond tweets and far beyond rhetoric and far beyond rallies to really a stratosphere and a whole atmosphere that was working against American democracy and the will of the people.
0: So this is interesting because you must have had similar discussions to discussions I had post the impeachment where a lot of people, generally speaking, Republicans said we've had the impeachment. He was impeached. We, we, everything that needed to be out there is out there. Why don't we move on? Republican Democrats are still trying to live in the past. But in fact, what we have found from the January 6th investigation so far, and we've still not had public hearings other than the first day, and we've still not got a report from them, is much, much, much more detail um, than what we've had before. We now know that the CEO of Overstock was involved in these meetings with Michael Flynn, that the the, the, the cyber ninja guy was involved in in, in plotting all this nonsense uh, that led to him getting a big contract, that that uh, Sidney Powell and Rudy Julie. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the number of people who were there pitching a different idea an hour to Donald Trump. Will things change when this becomes more public, when it's not press report after Press report, but it's actually a report from the January 6th committee, in your opinion.
10: And Ali, isn't that the question of our generation of this moment? Will things actually change? Based on my conversations with Republicans, especially the ones that watch Mike Pence, who once at one point was downplaying the January 6th um, insurrection, saying that we're talking about it too much in the press, and then finally finds a moment where he can admit reality, which is that Donald Trump is wrong and that no one has the power to overturn the election. Um, Mike, Based on my conversations with those sort of Republicans and those sort of conservatives, until something really drastic happens and apparently an insurrection is not drastic <laughs> just just a pause to remember that um they are saying essentially that president trump will continue to have the power i do hear some people saying that there is some issues with vaccines which is of course not specifically related to January 6th, but this idea that former President Trump is having a break with his with his party and his followers because he's saying that people should take the vaccine, and there are a lot of people who are angry with him about that issue. But when it comes to January 6th and what we'll learn about the insurrection, it doesn't seem like the party, including the RNC, is really going to be moved by that. And I have to tell you, when I saw Mike Pence yesterday say that, my head started spinning for two mm-hmm. reasons. First, he was actually saying it, but then my head started spinning that my head was actually spinning because- I- <laughs> Hearing that was actually right. Yes,
0: yes. We grew up in adorable times, uh, Yamish where two uh, impeachments and an attempt to incite an insurrection was career ending. But, you know, it's 2022. Things are different now. It's uh, going to be great to spend more time with you, my friend. Uh, Yamiche Alcindor is the anchor and moderator of Washington Week on PBS, an MSNBC political contributor and a soon to be correspondent here at NBC News. And we welcome her with open arms. Coming up, it's been nearly 60 years since President Lyndon B. Johnson passed the Voting Rights Act. But in those six decades. Decades, not enough has changed. The right to vote is under attack once again. We'll talk to a lawmaker on the literal front lines of trying to change that. And the release of body camera footage showing the last moments of a young black man's life has reignited criticism over so-called no-knock warrants. And right after the break, new reporting that some portions of the Russian military along the Ukraine border have reached full combat strength and could be ready for action at a moment's notice. The latest on the crisis overseas is next. The U.S. and its NATO allies continue to try to de-escalate tensions uh, uh, along Ukraine's border. On Wednesday, the White House said that it had adjusted its language and was no longer describing the possibility of a Russian military offensive as, quote, imminent. But by Friday, The New York Times reports that Russian troops were entering final stages of readiness for a possible invasion of Ukraine. Now, according to The Times, quote, Through the Kremlin's intent, though the Kremlin's intentions are unclear, Ukrainian officials are now newly worried about the Crimean Peninsula, where Russia has deployed 10,000 additional troops. Now, back in December, we first reported that Putin had shipped about 90,000 troops to Ukraine's eastern border. Just over two months later, there are now more than 130,000 troops stationed along Ukraine's east, north and South, all of which border either Russia or Belarus. On Thursday, the U.S. accused Russia of hatching an elaborate plot to fake an attack on Russian troops by Ukrainian forces in order to justify a Russian invasion into Ukraine. The Pentagon says the Kremlin planned to use a fake propaganda video with actors dressed like Ukrainian militia attacking Russian soldiers. Russia responded to the American allegations, calling them nonsense and speculation. Joining me now is Helene Cooper, a Pulitzer Prize winning Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. She's also an MSNBC political analyst. Good morning to you, Helene. We have been saying that Russia's on the brink of invasion for a couple of weeks now. I, I need to understand. I mean, can Russia just have these 130,000 troops on the Ukrainian border for weeks and months and do nothing and just keep the world on edge like it's doing now?
11: That's a great question. Hi, thanks for having me, Ali. That's a great question, and it's something that the short answer will be, sure, they could, but the long answer is that gets really expensive. You're looking at uh, Russian troops who are, uh, they've been there for, what, it's been about 30 days now. They have more and more coming uh, every day, but it's very cold. They're not in hardship conditions. They're not in you know, they're not like dug into trenches and stuff like this at this point. They're still in camps and they're so it's it's not as bad as it could be, but it does, you do have to start thinking about morale. Uh, um, at this point, I think uh, the intel and the analysts uh, and American officials assume that Vladimir Putin can keep them there for a while longer. The conventional wisdom says that. The uh, the while Russia could go over the border at any time that they want, the optimal conditions would begin around February 15th when the ground in Ukraine is completely frozen. It's freezing now, but it's not at the frozen point. And then you have from about February 15th to the end of March uh, that you could um, where you would have frozen. And that's the best sort of um, those are the best um conditions for big tanks going over because the rivers are frozen ukraine has a lot of rivers for big tanks to go over you don't have to worry that the ukrainian military might blow up bridges you don't have to concentrate as much on that sort of thing and so you have optimal uh, maneuverability there's also the beijing olympics issue because the one country that vladimir putin really needs is china and you know alienating china at a time when he's almost assuredly heading into sanctions uh, is not the best idea.
0: Uh, Helene, there's some disagreement among NATO members regarding what to do about all this. In a recent piece that you wrote uh, in The New York Times with your colleague uh, Eric Schmidt, you write, the allies are divided on what kind of response would be triggered by a short of war action. What does that tell us about the ways the allies are are divided? What do, what do they need to do to find common ground if there isn't actually a war, but Russia continues to increase its pressure on Ukraine?
11: That's where it gets really tricky for NATO, Uh, um, because if Russia just NATO is uh, uh, what? How many countries? I'm going to say uh, 32 or something. I'm going to say it and, of course, probably get it wrong. But you're you're looking at all these different democracies that are coming into this with their own their own views and their own fears. Uh, So a lot of these countries, one of them being in particular Germany, are a little more skittish about really uh, alienating Russia. It could affect their economy. You have that Nord Stream uh, pipeline, and so you. Well, the the thing about a coalition like NATO is you have to go down to the last common denominator. If Vladimir Putin does a little bit, you know what Biden called a minor incursion. Uh, only going to the border, maybe staying in Donbass. I think at that point he has a better chance of fracturing NATO because while the United States and maybe the UK and other countries would, uh, might say, "Then we still go." This is a huge violation of sovereignty. Any any crossing of the border is a is a is is a definite big violation of the of Ukrainian say. Uh, is, um, sovereignty and we should go to maximum set sa- sanctions. You may have a few other countries, uh, perhaps Germany saying not so fast, you know, is this such a big deal that we're gonna have this huge uh, global power standoff. Is if Mr. Putin, if President Putin goes for the whole hog, uh, uh, Kyiv and the toppling of the Ukrainian government um, and a conquer and occupation of the entire country, that actually has a better chance of uniting NATO uh, in a strong response, but it also would be catastrophically, you probably see a catastrophic kind of humanitarian situation after that with, you know, 1 million to 2 million, 2 million to 3 million refugees is one of the estimates I heard. You see huge numbers of civilian casualties, casualties on both sides. So it's almost as if, you know, the worst case scenario might bring about the best outcome for NATO unity, but it certainly wouldn't bring about the best outcome for the civilian, uh, for, for humanitarian reasons.
0: Helene, thanks for joining us this morning. We always appreciate your insight and your analysis. Helene Cooper is a Pulitzer Prize winning Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. Well, you know their names, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, Fannie Lou Hamer, and you know what they fought for. But the battle over the right to vote is not just something that exists in the pages of a U.S. history book. It is happening today.
7: What if millions of Black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremangely, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now.
0: It's officially Black Heritage Month, a nationally recognized time to reflect on the accomplishments, contributions and sacrifices of black Americans. It's common this time of year to see celebrations and remembrances of the civil rights icons whose sacrifices were instrumental in securing voting rights for African-Americans with the passage of the landmark Voting Rights Act in 1965. We hear a lot about uh, folks like Dr. Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Fannie Lou Hamer and other civil rights leaders. And we're often reminded that they were fighting an openly unjust system that shut out generations of black voters and that they had to literally put their bodies on the line, getting arrested in many cases, in order to triumph over that injustice. Fast forward nearly 60 years and the fight's not over. Donald Trump's big lie has millions convinced convinced that our elections are rigged and state level Republican lawmakers across the country are responding by trying to make voting harder, in large part for voters of color, with over 30 bills actively targeting and and restricting voting rights. Meanwhile, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act are still being blocked in the Senate. All of this puts access to the ballot at risk for many Americans, particularly minorities and those from marginalized communities. And lo and behold, some of those protesting for equal voting rights for all Americans are being taken away in handcuffs in twenty twenty two just like my next guest, who you're looking at there, was recently. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman from New York. He's the vice chair of the House Education and Labor Committee, and he's a former middle school principal. Representative Bowman, good to see you this morning.
12: Good to see you as well. I missed you,
0: brother. Thanks for having me. I, I have missed you, too. And you and I always end up talking about other political stuff. And we don't get down to the topics we need to talk about. But I am kind of surprised at the number of people I have interviewed in the last year who have been arrested fighting for voting rights. Feels like news reporting from the 1960s. What's happened today? What are the things that are getting getting you arrested and how are they moving the needle?
12: Uh, as we know, Donald Trump happened. As we know, QAnon happened. And as we know, a big lie in the insurrectionists happened. And unfortunately, we are still a country who has not grappled with our history in an open and honest way. That's one of the reasons why we're still out there protesting. We're still out there getting arrested. People are going on hunger strike. Uh, for several weeks. And this is just, it's just another reminder that democracy is a contact sport. It's something we need to be engaged in and part of each and every day. And in terms of that history, it's why we introduced the African American History Act with Cory Booker as the Senate lead, because we have to accurately teach American history and accurately, t- accurately teach African American history to tell the truth and move forward as the nation we're supposed to be.
0: Uh, and I've, got, I've just got a screen up there of the African-American History Act, investing $10 million over five years in the National Museum of History and Culture, uh, supporting African-American history education programs that are voluntarily available for students, parents and educators, supporting the museum's effort to engage with schools to include their resources and curricula. That's just a little bit of the whole thing. You are an educator. And and my only hope today in this messed up political system we have is that the kids might save us one day. And yet there is a, a very determined effort to stop that from happening. This history that we don't fully understand yet, and I, I hope we would learn more of, folks are
12: trying to stop that. The kids have to save us. I repeat, the kids have to save us. We must listen to them because they are telling us what we need to know. The reason why we have mass incarceration and a school to prison pipeline, the reason why we have a rise in mental health uh, concerns and issues amongst amongst our kids, the reason why black and Latino kids are suspended and expelled at a higher rate beginning in pre-kindergarten is because we are not connecting with them with our school curriculum by teaching them their history and their culture. And when you're a black person or Latino or Asian or what have you, and you don't learn about yourself, you have no sense of identity and you feel lost within the school system and within your culture, country and you end up making poor decisions. I connect this directly to gun violence. If we have a stronger curriculum, and more sense of identity and community, we are less likely Mm -hmm. to commit harm against that community. And it's the same thing as a country. We need to be honest about our identity as a country so we can heal as a country.
0: When you say people need to get involved, obviously uh, getting arrested is it a choice you 've made it 's a choice that the reverend barbers made it 's a choice that a number of your colleagues in congress have made it 's conscious it 's a hard choice to make to get arrested uh, for some people, it would ruin their, their their lives and their careers. What are the other very basic ways in which people who are worried about the demise of democracy can participate you 're in education. Local elections get virtually no turnout in this country across the country, which means you can win a local election with five percent of the vote or 10 percent of the vote. And yet people don't go out to vote. They don't go to these school board
12: meetings. They don't go to their city council meetings. Is that a good starting place for my viewers? So absolutely. So voting in any and everything is really important. But showing up to school board meetings just to listen and learn and raise your voice in connection with the topics that are being discussed, that's really important too. So school board meetings, community board meetings, uh, PTA meetings, uh, state, county and city meetings, just be in the building, if you can, or on Zoom, if you have to be on Zoom. Also, get involved in a campaign. Do some postcard writing, letter writing, phone banking. Knock on a couple of doors. You'll see how empowered you feel yeah. even by knocking on just two or three doors. Uh, that's how you get involved in our democracy. And that's what's needed now because if, if people sit on the sideline... The insurrectionists are going to win this big lie and this battle and take our democracy and replace it with white nationalist fascism, and we can't let that happen.
0: Congressman, you're here on the day that we're launching the Velshi Band Book Club. Uh, what, what book uh, do you, uh, did, what was your favorite book that is challenged or banned right now?
12: The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. I don't know if it's challenged or banned, but please read that book, not just for black people, but everyone else. And also, happy birthday to Trayvon Martin. It's 10 years uh, since the horrible uh, tragedy took place. Happy birthday, Trayvon Martin.
0: Congressman, good to have you on the show. It's good to have a little time to explore a few things uh, beyond what just happened in Congress this week. Please join us whenever you can. Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York. And uh, unfortunately, while we mark uh, Trayvon Martin, a 22-year-old black man was shot dead by police serving a no-knock warrant in Minneapolis this past week. We'll tell you a mere lock story when we come back. This week we saw yet another black man die at the hands of Minneapolis police. It was all captured on body cam video. On Wednesday morning, just before 7 a.m., 22-year-old Amir Locke was sleeping on a sofa at his friend's apartment when a SWAT team burst into his home. Uh, into the home, by the way. It was not his home. Police say Locke pointed a loaded gun, quote, in the direction of officers, at which point they shot him multiple times. However, the footage released on Thursday puts that account into question. It's fairly disturbing, so we're only going to use still images of it. It shows a team of officers using a key to unlock the front door of the home that they then announce themselves only as they enter, feet away from where Locke is laying wrapped in a blanket. They yell, police, search warrant, get on the ground. One officer kicks the back of the couch, jostling Locke and making the gun that he'd been holding in his hand emerge from the blanket. Within moment, three gunshots are heard and the video ends. The entire encounter took less than 10 seconds. The police say they tried to immediately render aid, but Locke died later at a nearby hospital. The incident report indicates that he suffered two wounds to the chest and one to the right wrist. The Minneapolis PD set out that morning to execute a warrant for the neighboring St. Paul Police Department's homicide unit. Officials confirmed that Locke was never named in the warrant. They were not looking for him. And according to the family's attorney, Locke had a license to carry the firearm and had no criminal record. His death has been met with an immense public outcry. It's reignited the debate over the use of no-knock warrants, which is the same type of warrant that led to the death of Breonna Taylor back in 2020, also while she was sleeping. Yesterday, the mayor of Minneapolis imposed an immediate moratorium on no-knock warrants. In order to execute a no-knock warrant during the moratorium, there must be an imminent threat of harm, and the warrant must be approved directly by the chief of police. Meanwhile, Locke's death will be reviewed by the state's top cop. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison says he'll partner with the Hennepin County Attorney's Office to get to the bottom of this. Ellison previously led the prosecutions of former officers Derek Chauvin and Kim Potter, both of whom were convicted of murder and manslaughter, respectively. Joining me now is Tiffany Cross, my good friend and the host of The Cross Connection on MSNBC. Good morning, Tiffany.
5: Good morning, Allie. You know, this case is just it's so demoralizing to see these things happen over and over. Uh, Keith Ellison, as you know, used to be a congressman as well. Um, so he's very familiar with uh, federal law. But the, uh, we're going to talk about the Miralak on, on the cross uh, — the Miralak murder on the cross uh, connection today. And I'll be joined by the president of the Minnesota Association of Black Lawyers, uh, Frank Abu Onu. And we're going to get some answers from him about this no-knock warrant, why SWAT was reportedly involved, and yet again, what is going on with the Minneapolis police? I have not heard a lot of outrage from the NRA on this, considering that, according to his family and attorneys, he was licensed mm-hmm. to carry that firearm. Uh, plus, Allie, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are a lot of educators leaving the classroom. So I'm going to talk to a Virginia school teacher and president of the National Education Association, Becky Pringle, about why so many educators are leaving the classroom at record rates. You've seen a lot of this crazy footage, uh, as I have, with uh, you know parents, outraged at school boards, uh, white parents outraged over CRT. Um, so this is taking its toll on the country's educators. And plus, you know, we always have, uh, we have to mix it up with uh, a lot of culture and comedy. And to do that, we're going to have actress Shirley Ralph, whose latest role on screen is an educator, incidentally. And she's going to join me to talk about her new hit comedy, Abbott Elementary, which is so great. I binged a few episodes last night. So I'm really looking forward to talking to her. So all of that and more coming up on the Cross Connection. And yet again, I was in hair and makeup this morning, Allie, taking forever because I'm like, wait a second. Allie's got Yamiche on. Wait a second. Allie's talking about this other unique thing that I didn't even know about because you're the smartest man on television. So I was late for my teas. They're like, you got to go. So Thank you,
0: my friend. Your show is always amazing. There's not much advice I can give you in this business, old friend, but I I could, if you had time, sometime we could get together for coffee and I explain to you how I manage to spend less time in uh, hair these days than I used to. (laughs) Good to see you, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you at the top of the hour. Tiffany Cross, uh, stay tuned right after Velshi for more Tiffany. The Cross Connection starts at 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming up, the street says new data shows optimistic growth for black Americans. I'm thinking it's not enough. Coming up next, we'll discuss what can actually be done for financial equality. Well, we've all heard the adage, a rising tide lifts all boats. It can be applied to almost anything, but let's try to apply it to our economy. One would expect that if unemployment is low and wages are generally going up, that American workers across the board will all feel that positive impact equally. But that's not the case, especially if you're a person of color. I want to show you a chart that shows unemployment rates for black, Latino and white men and women over the past year. And let's zoom in at the unemployment rates for black and white men, the solid red line and the solid green line. This past month, the unemployment rate for white men was at three point two percent for black men. 7.1 percent. But what we're really looking at is the bigger picture. The entire line. Black workers have remained at an unemployment rate about twice as high as white workers for the past year. And white workers unemployment rate is far lower than black workers have ever experienced. The chart. Let me show you another chart. This chart shows the labor force participation rate for Hispanic, Asian and black uh, and white workers. Let's zero in on the white workers, which is the green line over here. Once again, black labor force participation, which is the red line here, did rise. 62% 62% now in January, uh, which is the same as white workers. But the disparity between the two lines over the past year is clear. White workers consistently and continually outpace their black counterparts. I'm not saying this new data in these two charts is not optimistic or that it's not good news. But when you're trying to close a gap something else needs to happen. We're seeing a little bit of growth in a community that has been disproportionately impacted time and again. The pandemic is just the latest example. I have one last example I want to show you, and it's perhaps the most crucial and the most telling. It's about wealth, the unequal distribution of which is at historic and frightening levels. Half of Americans hold just 2% of all the nation's wealth, and communities of color, Hispanics in uh, gold and blacks in red hold just a fraction of that. This chart shows how stark wealth inequality really is, indicating that the average household wealth for white, black and Hispanic families using data from the St. Louis Fed, white families are at the very top of the chart, an average of nearly one point three million dollars in household wealth. Black families, the number is just about three hundred thousand. It's a difference of more than four times. So what do we do about this? What can be done to raise these boats so badly that need a lift right after the break? I'm going to be joined by someone who has some answers to those fundamental questions. Bill Rogers is the director of the Institute for Economic Equity at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He's leading a team that's collecting data on wealth in the St. Louis region in order to see how people of color are being held back from fully participating in this growing economy. All right. Joining me now to continue our conversation about the economic racial divide is Bill Rogers. He's the vice president of the St. Louis Fed. He's the director of its Institute for Economic Equity. He's a former chief labor a chief economist for the U.S. Labor Department uh, and an old friend of mine. Uh, Professor Rogers, it is good to see you again. Thank you for being with us. Let's just cut to the chase here. We showed the data, but nobody's particularly surprised by that. Right. Black unemployment is higher. Black wealth is lower. Uh, we're doing well as an economy. Wealth is increasing. Unemployment is decreasing, but that gap is persistent between black Americans and the rest of the American population. How does that end?
13: Well, how much time do we have, Ali? Yeah. <laughs> So, so it's, it's great to see you. And um, I just do have to preface my remarks with by saying that these are my own uh, personal views uh, that they don't represent the uh, policy or the views of the bank here in St. Louis or this Federal Reserve system. Uh, I, what What comes to mind when you when what you showed there is several words: scaffolding, foundation, structure, and, and particularly structural. And what you really are honing in on and wanting us to focus on is the structural challenges is the, that, that, that blacks uh, face and they have historically faced. There's this amazing essay that Dr. King wrote back in 1966 when he was uh, for the Nation uh, magazine, and he talks about how uh, it's harder to create jobs than it is to create uh, voter rolls now some would question that uh, that statement now because of what's been ch- what's been happening with people being challenged about voting but his but his central point was that if you look at blacks then and when the statistics you compare to now very very similar right, that the, that the unemployment rates you said are lower. Uh, also, if you look at a living wage, a smaller share of black families have access to a living wage. And so how do we do this? Is And so at our institute, uh, Ray Bashara and, and his colleague Ida Rockenwalker from the Aspen Institute, uh, they've published, just published a really outstanding volume on wealth and approaches to, to improving uh, wealth and addressing this gap. Some of, uh, some of these uh, policies or approaches, or really practices too, focus on Uh, right from uh, from cradle right from birth uh providing opportunity for growing wealth 529s uh, which exist but but those are some examples and i urge people to read that Um, from a standpoint of the labor market right we just had this report on friday showed growth showed good growth coming out of the at the end but we have to do continue to do a better job on making sure that workplaces are fair um, and also
0: safe Uh, let me ask you about uh, when you look at the various places, you look at the various numbers we get, the unemployment rate itself, the workforce participation rate, the wage rates, the wealth disparities. Do they are they all connected? In other words, if there's what's the one you hone in on on wanting to fix? Because you can have higher, uh, lower levels of black unemployment. But if black people are not earning the same amount of money, you don't close the wealth gap.
13: Yeah, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. As I wrote in a Russell Sage uh, uh, volume a couple of years ago, there's just no silver bullet. That you have to have this comprehensive, 360-degree approach, whether it be from cradle to grave, and talk about how do you improve economic security at these various junctures, uh, or if it's the work of John Powell, where his t- where the focus there is about how do we improve belonging, or the work of uh, of uh, the United Way of Northern New Jersey, where we want to improve uh, the ability of families to have access to all their, be able to pay all their budget items. Uh, And that's what they call ALICE, where ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed. And these are families who are some in poverty, but most of them in our communities, and we know of, you know, Alice, I know Alice, your viewers know Alice. And these are people who just don't have enough income to make those resources go.
0: Bill, it's always good to talk to you. Uh, This isn't enough time to solve this problem, but let's just have this conversation lots and lots and lots, as you and I have done over the years. Bill Rogers is the vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And that does it for me. Thank you for watching. Catch me here tomorrow morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Velshi. I'll be joined by Lieutenant Colonel uh, Alexander Vindman, retired, a central witness in Donald Trump's first impeachment trial, plus former Trump aide Omarosa Manigault Newman.